This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Let me pray and, and we'll get going here with our text for today. Jesus, thank you so much for your love for us. As Pastor Jacob kicked off the gathering today with those words, Lord, you do love us. Lord, thank you for pursuing us. Uh, Lord, thank you for being open to our questions. Lord, thank you that you don't expect us to have it all figured out before we we get hope. Um, Lord, thank you that uh, you have given us your word, Lord, to, to take and to read and to study and to hear you speak, Lord, through, through your word. Uh, Lord, would you do that today? Would you speak? And Lord, would you give us the grace needed to hear? Lord, would we not just hear words? Would we hear your spirit speak to our hearts? To where it's not just information, but Lord, it leads to transformation of who we are and how we think and how we operate with our life. Do this, Jesus. I know you can. Help me in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this falls in context of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we have already worked through um, Jesus healing a lot of people in the region in the end of chapter 4, and then he goes into the Beatitudes, blessed are ye who do this and this, the meek will inherit the earth, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, etc. Right? He moves through all the Beatitudes that people are familiar with to some extent perhaps. And then he begins to teach about his kingdom because Jesus has come as a king. And he's inaugurating his kingdom with this Sermon on the Mount, this, with his word. He's proclaiming the culture and the climate of the creation that he is forming, of the new kingdom that he is he's creating and forming even in this, this moment. He's redefining what the king is going to look because they did not expect. We, we've entitled this series through Matthew, The Unexpected King, because the Jews did not expect a king to come in humility. They did not expect a king to come in with patience and meekness. Man, they were being held uh, under Roman rule. They wanted to be freed. This is like almost going back to Egypt underneath the persecution of the Egyptians being held as slaves. Like, like they, they want their king to come in and bash Rome and form a new earthly kingdom set up where Rome serves the Jews. And Jesus comes in and, and teaches that the last will be first. And that the meek, they're the ones who have hope of having the earth and so forth. Very upside down for what they were expecting. And then here, pressing in and informing the audience made up of his disciples and followers and the Pharisees, that's the religious rulers and leaders of the day, those who got A pluses on all their religious homework, they were there and he's teaching these things and they learn two things. And I hope that we learn these two things today. One, that the Bible is the word of God and it's perfect. And two, the Bible is all about Jesus. Those two things, what we're focusing on today. The Bible is the word of God and it's perfect and the Bible is all about Jesus. Let's look at verse 17. Follow along on the screen if you don't have it with you there uh, at your seat. Do not think that I have come, or literally never think that I have come to abolish or destroy the law or the prophets. All right, that's another way of saying the Old Testament. The law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, you hear it talked around a lot, tossed around a lot. He's referring to the Old Testament here. 
Do not think that I have come to destroy or abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that was mission language. My mission, this is how they would hear it in their culture. That phrase means very little to us today compared to that first audience that it was spoken to. It was literally like, my mission is not to come and abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That's my mission. That's why I have come. For truly, I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So right here, we're going to push pause here, and then we'll get back into 19 and 20. Here in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a remarkable statement about the Bible, about the law and the prophets, about the Old Testament. The Bible is the Word of God, and it is perfect. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And Jesus confirms the full authority of the Old Testament as scripture for all time, even down to the smallest components of the written text. When he uses the word iota and dot, the iota was the smallest Greek striking of the pen, the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. The dot refers uh, to the tiny stroke that would differentiate um, one letter from another, not the whole letter. For instance, if you have a J without the top, if you just have a J here, there's a difference in, a, in, in something similar to this in Hebrew, and then this J with a little, just a, a little hash at the very top, just tiny. That's what this is getting at, just the smallest little stroke of the pen, not an iota, not a dot. This is where dot the I cross the T comes from, is this, this here. Um, every little element, every detail. Here Jesus makes a strong statement about the Bible. The strongest statement that you can make about the Bible, he makes right here. Here Jesus upholds the authority of the Old Testament scriptures right down to the least stroke of the pen. He has the highest view of the Bible. Jesus himself does. He doesn't just go so far as to say that every single letter and part of the letter is true of the Bible. He goes further. He says that every part of the Bible will come true. There's a difference here. He doesn't just say that it's true. He says it will be accomplished. All that's in it will be accomplished. See, it's one thing to say that the Bible's true. A phone book, in theory, a phone book could be true, and it could be without error. So it's more than just it being true. He goes beyond that and says that it's not just true. He's basically saying that the Bible is the way in which God is running the universe. He's literally saying nothing in this book will not be accomplished. Everything will be accomplished. It is true, and it will become true. It will be true. It will happen, everything that's in here. This means every prophecy will come true. And even more beautiful is all the promises will be fulfilled. Every single command in this beautiful book will someday be obeyed. Because one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. This is not just true. This will come true. 
Every dot, every iota, Jesus says, every single letter and piece of a letter cannot be broken, is what he says in John chapter 10. It cannot be broken. It cannot be falsified. It cannot be written off. It cannot be discounted. Not one part of it, because every part of it is the word of God. And on the word of God and the basis of it, Jesus Christ says God is running the universe. This is how he's doing it. It will all be accomplished. If Jesus has that view of scripture, what must he believe about the word of God? He must believe that it is a completely divine book, that it does not have any blemish or imperfection in it. And it's also a book of tremendous power because it is completely sufficient to get it done. Here at the Axis Church, we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible comprised of Old and New Testament, 66 books in total, to be the inspired, God-breathed Word of God. It is the final authority for faith and for life. It is dependable, it is unfailing, it is reliable, it is trustworthy, and it is true. It is sound. It cannot be broken. We believe that the whole Bible is about Jesus. We believe that God authored the Bible down to every single word. Yes, we believe that. But that doesn't mean that God figuratively sits down at a desk and takes out a pen and starts writing down the Bible. Instead, he inspired writers all throughout history to write down scripture. And these, these human authors, they certainly retain their own style, their own voice, their own experiences, their own perspective, and their cultural distinctives. Yet God uniquely inspired them and gave them the words to say so that they would write down exactly what God wanted to with complete accuracy. We believe God did this. We also believe the word of God will outlast creation as Isaiah 40 verse 8 as well as 1 Peter 1.25 says that the grass will wither, the flower will fade, but the word of God will stand, it will endure, it will last forever. This means that the mountains and seas will be temporary compared to the word of God. My friends, we must daily and minute by minute submit ourselves to the truth and the authority of the Bible. It is truth. May we each view Scripture the same way that Jesus viewed Scripture. For the Jews to hear this, for the Jews to hear that Jesus fulfilled the law, they knew that he was making a divine claim to being Messiah. They knew that he was saying something significant when he said that he came not to abolish but to fulfill, to bring about, to make everything true, to reconcile all things, which is my second point, that the Bible is all about Jesus. Consider this, Luke 24, verse 27, Jesus, walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he, he, he says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he went back through Moses. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. So here's another shorthand way of calling it the Old Testament or the law. He uses the word Moses and all the prophets. 
he begins to show his disciples where he was in the storyline. Another time in John 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. He's speaking here of the Old Testament. Certainly, the the Bible exists for many reasons, and chief among these reasons is the revelation of the person and work of our our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament's real and abiding authority, it must be understood through the person and work of Jesus, through his teachings, the one who the Old Testament is pointing to and the one who so richly fulfills all that's in the Old Testament. You see, the Bible's not just an interesting book of religious stories or regulations or rules. It's all about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the point of the Bible. Never forget this, please. Read the Bible this way. The Bible is about a king and about how a king lived here and he went away and he's coming back. Scripture itself is written with one large overarching storyline. It begins in the garden where there's peace. It begins with creation, but then Sin comes in, and here's where the fall is, and there's hostility, and there's division, and then there's the work of of Jesus in the redemption of his people, and then there's a recreation where he makes all things new. There's a restored relationship with God, and there's heaven forever with him. This is the storyline of the Bible. This is the grand narrative of the Bible. It's not two testaments. It's not 66 Stories in and of themselves, they holistically work to collectively flow in this stream of creation and fall, redemption and recreation. And Jesus says here that he fulfills all of the Old Testament, meaning that it's all pointing to him, not just in his specific prediction of being the Messiah, but even in ways of fulfilling the sacrificial system, which pointed to when he would one day die on a cross as the ultimate once and for all sacrifice. You see, even the sacrificial system was given to point to Jesus. Notice that Jesus, he doesn't say that he will keep the law. He doesn't say that he's going to keep the law himself. Rather, he says that he will fulfill the law himself, being a representative, meeting a certain criteria, a certain requirement. He's fulfilling that requirement that is there. Jesus fulfilled the requirement of righteousness that we have to meet in order to be restored in our relationship with God that the fall had destroyed and severed and put separation between a holy God and unholy people. He came in to redeem us and recreate us. He's the one who has worked as our representative by fulfilling the law in order for us to have peace and have hope and to become fit for heaven. Jesus fulfilled the requirement of the law perfectly for us. Jesus Christ says, I did not come to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish the prophets. I came to fulfill them. They're they're all about me. And I know that we say this 
Every week here at the Axis, by grace, by the sheer grace of God, we say this every week at the Axis Church, but we must hear it every week and not allow it to become mundane or yesterday's news or ordinary or routine. When, when Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, it means I came to fulfill what was required for you to have life. I've come, I've come to, to do all that's necessary for you to have hope, for you to be restored to the Father. I've done that for you. Every human being needs to fulfill the law. And every human being cannot fulfill the law. We cannot. There's not a single one who is righteous enough on their own. So how do we get to heaven? How do we have our relationship with God restored? Jesus Christ says, I took care of it. I fulfilled the law for you. In fact, here in context, he's talking with the Pharisees in the audience, the religious leaders, you know. And they're worried by this point. They're angry. They have to be. They've just gone through the Beatitudes. He's just turned their whole mindset of what the king and the kingdom and the culture and the climate of that kingdom is going to be. Jesus has told everybody that the kingdom is theirs if they're poor in spirit. What? He's telling that the kingdom is theirs if they mourn over their sin, if they submit to God in meekness. And then Jesus says that the kingdom of God is a gift that you get and not something that you earn. So by now the Pharisees have to be saying, well, what about the law? What about the law? Where's the law in the kingdom? This grace stuff that you're talking about, like, where's, we need the law. Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. Where's the law? How come you're not telling people about the law, king? Jesus turns around and says, my friends, I take the law more seriously than you do because I came and I fulfilled the law perfectly so that anybody who believes in me can have my perfect righteousness and perfect record in their account. And God will accept them on the basis of what I have done for them, not for how well they perform. Okay, that's where you should have shouted, right? That's where you should be like, no, really? Come on. It's mundane. We forget that we're dead. We forget that the law exists. And outside of grace, outside of Jesus, we fail forever. Jesus says, my friends, I take the law more seriously than you do because I came and I fulfilled the law perfectly so that anybody who believes in me can have my perfect righteousness and my perfect record in their account, automatic deposit, like it's there. It's for you. And God will accept you not on the basis of what you have done because you have earned condemnation. Rather, you're going to be looked and viewed and treated from God as someone who has been perfectly righteous always. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. You see, we're all required to keep and uphold the law perfectly in order to have peace with God. 
and to live forever with him in paradise. But the bad news is that because of who we are and what we have done, our sin separates us. And there's no one who can meet this requirement. But Jesus came and he fulfilled what was required. That is perfection for those who will hope and trust in him for their salvation. This is grace. And he's done it for you and he asks you to believe him. There is no other way. Jesus Christ himself in John 14, 6 said, I am the way. There is a way and it's not you performing. It's not you being good enough in and of your own efforts and going to church enough and giving enough and volunteering enough and, and being a preacher and planning a church. That's still not enough. I've come to do the work for you to make you good enough because Jesus was perfect. This is good news. This is grace. You see, the fulfillment of the law does not mean that the law is eliminated or ignorable. It remains it stays, and the fact that the law remains should cause Christ's followers to praise Jesus and make much of Jesus because without him, the law would still be there to condemn us forever. But his grace is greater. His grace is greater. When asked, how do you have hope of heaven after you die? Most people today will still say, Yes, I have hope. Well, how and, and why? They say, well, I'm a good person. However, it's not being a good person. Rather, it's am I a good enough person? And what does good enough require? What does that look like in the Bible to be good enough to have hope for heaven? It requires perfection, righteousness, and absolute holiness. Nothing less enters the kingdom of heaven. So according to the Bible, are you good enough? Perfection, righteousness, absolute holiness. To be these things is our only hope. And we can't, if we can't meet these requirements, then we're, we're stuck back at hopeless. So there's two, there's two ways here that we can be considered good enough before God and fit for heaven. One is that we're perfect without ever sinning, without ever messing up, without ever making a mistake, without ever missing at the most, one question on any given test in our whole life. Perfect. We have to be perfect. That cancels me out. Let's see what option number two is. You have someone live a perfect life on your behalf and have that same person die absorbing the punishment that is due for your mistakes and your sins that you've made. That's what Jesus has done. This is what he has accomplished for us. He met this requirement for us. He fulfilled the righteous requirement. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's not any left. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. We could not be good enough. We could not keep the law good enough. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. Here we go. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see, he was doing this as a representative. He was doing this in our place. 
Let's finish here in 19 and 20. Continuing talking. And here he turns his attention specifically to these Pharisees that are in the group. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the, the rabbis, they had a, uh, a distinction that they made between like commandments and weighty commandments. Like commandments would be like tithing your garden. So your produce that you get, you kind of tithe it away. And then the weighty ones, well, that was like murder, adultery, and so forth. And Jesus is saying, there's something greater than even the way that you judge sin. There's no little sin, big sin. There's no relaxing one and flexing the other. The least and greatest are the same. And what is expected? What has to be met is perfection. All these sins, big and small, little white lies, big murderous plots that are carried out, they're the same. All these sins are a rebellion against a holy God. And for him to continue to be God, he must justify all things, which means judge all things, hold all things accountable, letting nothing slide. He's saying here there must be this perfection in all the commandments. Here, all of us who believe Jesus should cry out, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, because he has upheld and fulfilled the law perfectly for us. Now notice here that he also calls them to practice what they preach. It's like he says, does, whoever does them and teaches them, he's calling for authenticity and a holistic believer, one who not only studies but also teaches, not just someone who teaches, but also someone who's being changed by what he's teaching. Hear and do, teach and also live. Living in his righteousness, pursuing him in obedience. You see, for the Pharisees that were present, it was, it was only being concerned with the outward. It was only being concerned with what was seen by other people. The, the heart, not a big deal. The unseen, not a big deal. The motive behind obedience, that doesn't matter. It just matters if you do good in front of people. And here, Jesus redefines what keeping the law is when he speaks to the motive behind our actions. For instance, and we're going to get here as, as he teaches through this Sermon on the Mount, it was do not kill, but now he says if you have anger in your heart, it's the same thing as killing someone. He says, don't steal. He's saying, man, if you, if you desire something that someone has, that's the same thing as stealing it. He says, don't commit adultery. It's the old law. In Christ, what he's bringing in is, if you even have an impure thought of another person, it's the same as committing an adulterous act because he sees the heart it's obeying from the heart that's the issue, and that's what Jesus is concerned about. He's not concerned with the outward nearly as much as the inward, and he knows that if he can get in and change our hearts, that the outward will take care of itself as he begins to change us from the inside out. It's not about modifying your behavior or just doing these rules. It's about Jesus working in us. 
You see, those in this new kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating here are no longer going to be defined by race or class or knowledge or success or performance, but obedience to the king of the kingdom, humble obedience in word and action and what their king has done for them. Jesus fulfills the ancient law of what was required and his Holy Spirit works in us to will and to do everything that pleases him and honors him. And what's crazy is Jesus, all of his actions, every minute of his life, work to please and honor God. And that record is ours if we believe. Jesus is calling his disciples to a different quality of righteousness here. It's more than what the scribes and Pharisees had. They took pride in in outward conformity to many extra-biblical regulations, but they still had very impure hearts so that that what the actual behavior of Jesus' followers does, in fact, exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees because it's coming from the heart and it's the heart echoes their actions. So this is where it exceeds So now that that Jesus has fulfilled the law, the meticulous legalism of the Pharisees, of the teachers of the law, is totally and completely inadequate for what the new kingdom is bringing about uh, through Jesus' saving work. We're going to unpack a lot of these practical things of Jesus' new kingdom and him going to the heart in the coming weeks. So in light of this sermon, I want to leave you with two requests in closing. One... Please give yourself to the Bible. Give yourself to the Bible. We must search the Bible and we must allow it to search us. The function of the Bible is not just to be believed and enjoyed, but also to be the center of your life and to change you. Search the scriptures and let the scriptures search you. It's no good to say, well, I believe in the authority of the word of God. When you don't make time to search the scriptures and let the scriptures search you. Searching is time consuming. It takes time. We take time to shop and cash checks and to work and make money and do laundry. Most of us do laundry. You find time to do what's important, but are you searching the scriptures? It's one thing to say, well, I guess I have to believe what Jesus says. But does the scripture have functional authority in your life and not just intellectual authority? Does it practically make a difference in how you live your life? Or is it just knowledge that you use to occasionally engage in an argument? Or does it inform how you live? Does it give you hope in low seasons? Is it working in you? Do you... Do you really say, I have to know this thing because God is running the universe on the basis of every iota and dot, and I have to get it in my life. I must get it in my life. Are you hungry for this? Do you search the scripture? Then most importantly, do you let the scripture search you? Do you allow it to do its treatment on you? Do you let it come after you? Have you heard it speaking to you? Do you wrestle with it? Do you invite others into your journey following Jesus, reading the scriptures, asking questions? Do you invite others into your pursuit of Jesus in the Bible? 
It is in the word that you do find truth and you do find hope and you do find life because you find Jesus. May we feast here. So please give yourself to the Bible. My second request is that you give yourself to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not just a way to help you get better at keeping the law. I'm the end of the law for those who believe me. I have fulfilled the law. I'm the point of the Bible. Give yourself to me. Receive me as your savior. I'll come inside and change everything. A lot of us do this. A lot of us believe this about the Bible, but are we searching it? Are we letting it search us? You can't know Jesus unless you listen to his word. May we allow the Bible to come in us and allow Jesus to come in us. Finally, those are the two things. This is just a closing few comments. Why does Jesus, why does Jesus teach this? Why do the disciples preach and teach similar things? Why does the Apostle Paul teach similar things? Of the Bible is true, believe it. It's inspired, it's infallible, it's perfect. It's, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts to the marrow and the bone. Like, why, is, why do people talk about this in the New Testament? Why do, people, why do people have a high regard in the New Testament about who Jesus is? What, what's, why is the Bible, why is it so important for people to continue to talk about Jesus in the Bible? Why do we here at the Axis Church still preach such elementary truths such as the Bible is perfect. Why take a Sunday to preach on the Bible being perfect or Jesus needing to be believed? That he's your hope and your only hope. Why, why do that? Why talk about Jesus every Sunday? Why don't, we, why don't we move on to something else? Because friends and family, there is a war raging within every one of us in this room. There's a, there's a war raging between belief and disbelief. And then in this, in this struggle, there, there's, it's, in, it's intense, and especially when life hurts. And when life hurts bad enough, you will doubt these things. You'll doubt that Jesus is Savior. You'll doubt that there's hope in the Bible. You'll doubt that it's really from God. You see, we don't, we don't drift towards strong, firm belief. We don't drift towards holiness and pursuing Jesus. We all drift away from these things if we just let it go on cruise control. We, we all drift towards our own way. We must constantly keep these things before each other, fighting the driftings of each other. To use language from 1 Timothy 4, we must train ourselves in godliness. In the words of faith, we must train ourselves in godliness. We must toil and strive here. We must devote ourselves to these truths. We must practice these things. We must immerse our ourselves in these things. We must keep a close watch on ourselves in the Bible. May we persist in this for by doing so we will find hope and life, eternal life and unshakable hope. But if you just let go, you don't drift to practicing and immersing and devoting and toiling and striving and chewing and pulling and climbing. That's not a drift. That's not drift language. That's intentional pursuit. 
So why do we teach Jesus every Sunday? Why do we take a Sunday to talk about the validity of the Bible? It's because we need this preached to our core every minute of every day. We need a larger anchor to hold us for when life blows at us and it's taking our ship, our vessel, our sail, and it's moving us away. May God's truth be the anchor that we will only go so far. My prayer is that you fight, that you pursue, that you train. Not only is there this struggle within us, there's a struggle and there's a war in our culture around us that's empowered and fueled by the enemy. It's it's against the Bible and it's against the truth that the Bible proclaims. It's at war against the Bible being a perfect book. Christians are jokes. Believing an ancient book is ridiculous. You see, the culture is at war against Jesus being God, dying on a cross, beating death, and saving a people, and returning as judge. People scoff at that. There's a war in our culture against the doctrine of hell. There's a war in our culture against sin being sin and sin being punished or repented of. There's a war against God having any opinion at all about anything. There's a war against these things. And my dear family, I'm begging you to press into belief. Cry out to God for faith, for saving faith. Pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help the places in my heart where I don't get it and I I have insecurities and fears. Pray that to him. Give yourself to Jesus. Give yourself to the Bible. Read it, study it, and find Jesus there. And he will change you. He will give you hope. I know it. Family, I love you. And I'm here clawing with you. I'm here struggling with you. Let's press on. Because one day, we'll be like him, and we'll be with him in his presence. We'll be celebrating around the throne. I really wanted to read Revelation 5, but I'm, I'm not. But I want you to read Revelation 5 sometime today. Because you're in there. If you're a believer, you're a part of Revelation 5. You're, it's, it's, it's something that hasn't happened yet, but it will because the truth of God, the word of God can't be broken. So I know what's going to happen. I know I'm going to be there. I hope that you'll be there too. Read Revelation 5. There's a party that's going to happen because of Jesus, and we'll be there. Press on. Continue to be like Jesus. That's what our city needs. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time this morning in your word. Lord, I pray that you, Lord, even now continue to make it resonate in the hearts of these people, Lord, believers and unbelievers alike. Would you just be active, Lord, uh, in speaking to them, revealing things? Lord, would, would they begin to care about things that they have been careless about? regarding you, regarding the Bible. Lord, would you make us serious students of of who you are, of what you've done, Lord, of your Bible. Lord, it is your word. We believe that you have spoken it. Lord, would, would that be the first place we go? Lord, would you... Would you allow us to struggle together and persevere together, Lord, as a church family? Lord, would you allow us, uh, Lord, just to continue to believe these things by grace. Make them resonate deeply within who we are. Not just now, not just today, but this week 
and for everlasting. Lord, let us hold fast to these things. We love you and we thank you for being our anchor. You're so good to us. In Christ's name, amen.